You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Month edition of Heart Sounds. This is the podcast where I recap some interesting tidbits in cardiology from the past month and do that by tuning in on interviews the TCTMD reporters did while pulling together the news. First off, thanks so much to Caitlin Cox for sitting in the host chair last month. I took a few weeks off to explore Vietnam, which I've always wanted to do, and it totally exceeded my expectations. I was there for the Tet New Year celebrations, which made it even more special. Any Heart Sounds listeners from Vietnam? I hope so. While I was slurping noodles, the rest of the team pulled together some great meeting coverage, a feature story or two, and some other news stories across the spectrum of cardiovascular disease. Let's jump in. If you are a regular reader of TCTMD, you're already aware that the uproar over paclitaxel-based balloons and stents in PAD shows no sign of abating. The now famous Katsano's meta-analysis showing an increased risk of death with these devices over the longer term sparked major concerns in December, prompting a special session at the LINK meeting in January, which Caitlin told you about on this podcast last month. Most people seemed reassured by these analyses. One of them, presented at length by Peter Schneider of the Hawaii Permanente Group in Honolulu, was actually published in full a few days later. These were five-year outcomes from Medtronic's Impact Admiral data and showed no death difference at five years for paclitaxel DCBs versus PTA in femoropopliteal disease. But not a week has gone by without some new development in this story. Earlier this month, two of the most active companies in this space announced, quote, inadvertent errors in their publicly reported data. The first was Medtronic, which acknowledged February 15th that mortality data had been inadvertently omitted from the published two-year Impact Global Report in 2018. This news will have an impact on the Schneider meta-analysis, and TCTMD has confirmed that a correction notice is in the works. The second company to admit a data snafu was Cook Medical. A correction notice was printed in circulation a few days after the Medtronic announcement, quietly acknowledging that a 2016 report on five-year follow-up from the Zilver PTX paclitaxel stent trial had accidentally reversed the mortality data for the study arms. Once corrected, all-cause mortality was significantly higher, not lower, with the paclitaxel stent than with plain old balloon angioplasty in PAD. A published figure was also incorrect. TCTMD's Laura McEwen has been on this story from the start and covered those two data bombs this month. Before that, however, she spoke with Jay Geary at the University of Pennsylvania. Looking back, it's as if Geary had a sixth sense about what was to follow. Have a listen. I meant to mention one other thing uh, about what could be going wrong here, and it's been alluded to by some folks, but it it shouldn't be discounted. And that's that uh, there could be errors in reporting in the actual studies that were published, Uh you know. And, uh, you know, so in other words, people could be reported as being alive that aren't alive in certain arms, like dead that aren't dead, like, you know, the very hard errors, Um, or they could be misassigned. There's all these things. And if you're going back over things with a fine tooth comb, looking over it again, like what is about to be done through the original patient data, when you analyze this, um, that could be accounted for properly. That's that's something that you hope wouldn't happen, but it's, uh, there's a lot of, you know, I know you're probably on Twitter and there's all kinds of folks on Twitter who every time a study comes out, the first thing they do is actually look for errors. And it's surprising how many times, even after going through peer review, these folks are able to find, uh, you know, clear errors uh, in tables and clear errors in figures. (laughs) 
Let's turn now to some meeting coverage that hit our front page in February, starting with news from the Society of Thoracic Surgeons meeting in San Diego. TCTMD's Yael Maxwell covered the STS conference and on the opening day of that meeting reported on results of an analysis looking at the relationship between volumes and outcomes for aortic valve procedures. As you likely know, this is a hot-button topic right now. Last year, the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, started a review of its national coverage determination for TAVR with the purpose of re-evaluating whether procedural volume requirements for starting and maintaining TAVR programs are supported by the evidence. A meeting of the Medicare Evidence Development and Coverage Advisory Committee, MedCAC, for the CMS led to a split vote last year, with members unable to reach consensus on questions of hospital volume thresholds and access to TAVR. At STS, Yael covered a presentation by Samir Hirji of Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, looking at whether surgical aortic valve replacement volumes and outcomes offer any insights into how transcatheter procedures will fare. Sure enough, in this analysis of Medicare data, hospitals performing the highest number of SAVR cases per year also tended to have the lowest 30-day and one-year mortality for TAVR. Other indicators, such as acute kidney injury, blood transfusions, permanent pacemaker use, and major bleeding, also ticked up in TAVR patients treated at hospitals with lower surgical volumes. So what explains this connection? Yael put that question to Siyoshi Kaniko, also a surgeon at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Our message is not to say that surgeons should be the main player or should be the person that will be doing the TAVRs. We're still a collaborative heart team, and the yeah. concept of heart team is very important. And that's what we want to accomplish. And right. I think this concept has infiltrated inside a level. But um, I think in some aspects, there's some drift and loss of interest yeah. um, because it's been used so frequently. Mm -hmm. But um, I think this paper will refuel that discussion okay. on the importance Great. of the heart team. Early in February, TCTMD's Todd Neal headed to the International Stroke Conference in Honolulu, and as great as that sounds, Todd didn't get a heck of a lot of time enjoying the tropical breeze. Instead, he covered a range of drug and device stories in the setting of stroke, which you can find under the conference tab on the website. Todd also got a feature story out of ISC. This one wasn't looking specifically at stroke treatments and outcomes, but was instead a topic we've seen other meetings grapple with namely, the need to increase the representation of women and minorities in the meeting spotlight. As Todd reports several studies at ISC, all conducted with some contribution from current members of the ISC program committee, looked at the representation of women in terms of abstracts submitted, invited speaking roles, and meeting leadership. It's a bit of a mixed picture. Between 2014 and 2018, women were first authors for only about one-third of submitted and accepted abstracts and accounted for only 28% of those asked to speak at invited symposia, pre-conference sessions, debates, and case theater presentations. On an even more depressing note, those numbers haven't budged over the five years studied. Elsewhere, however, there are some more encouraging signs. The proportion of women on the ISC program committee has risen over time, increasing from just 14.3% in 2014 to 48.2% in 2018. That said, big disparities remain between the number of women and men invited as speakers, moderators, and award recipients. Todd spoke about some of this with Louise McCulloch from the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. She's the current vice chair of the ISC program committee and had this to say. 
The good news is, though, is we are turning the corner, I think. I think the fact that we're even talking about this is something that we wouldn't have talked about five years ago. Right? The people are, once you start paying attention to a problem, then it's easier to find solutions. When you don't pay attention, you can't find solutions. So I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic, especially because so many people have really gotten behind this, men and women, senior mentors, junior mentors. Um, we had several networking opportunities for specifically for women in medicine and science um, throughout the program, and that's occurring everywhere, not just through the AHA. Every meeting is now doing this because they're realizing that diversity brings good ideas. You know, you want diverse representation on every committee. So we're, we're, we're kind of selling ourselves short if we don't include people because they have good ideas. As I mentioned, February is Heart Month, and several of the major medical journals had special issues this month addressing the different aspects of heart disease in women. Circulation once again had its special Go Red for Women issue. The Lancet announced the formation of a special commission on women and cardiovascular disease and Jack Heart Failure released a special issue examining sex-specific strategies for prevention and treatment of heart failure in women. I myself covered several of these studies for TCTMD, including two papers looking at heart failure drugs in women. One looked at differences in adverse drug reactions between men and women. The other looked at drug efficacy. I hope you'll find my full story on TCTMD, but in the meantime, here's Hester Den Reuter. She points out that for too long, cardiology research has been missing a critical opportunity to understand how drugs work, both in the men and the women, to whom they're prescribed. Here's her solution. I think we should just stop pooling data and calling people patients. There's, there's no such thing like a patient. It's either a man or a woman. And uh, they have different body compositions, different sex chromosomes, different hormones. We're similar, but also very different in, in many ways. And we know that also in the pathophysiology of heart failure, in the pathophysiology of atherosclerosis. So there's every reason to uh, do this in a systematic way, with, especially in these fields of cardiology. Caitlin Cox, meanwhile, was juggling multiple hats, particularly when I was out of the office, but she, too, covered a paper of particular relevance for women. This was a study led by Ahmed Al-Badri at Emory University in Atlanta, looking at the link between abnormal coronary reactivity in women and the risk of cardiovascular disease and death over the next decade. As Caitlin notes in her coverage, the idea that abnormal coronary reactivity may be at the root of women's often atypical presentation isn't new. But the possibility that it might serve as such an early harbinger of poor outcomes could lead the way toward useful screening tools for female patients with angina, but no obstructive coronary artery disease, or ANOCA. The Albadri analysis, which drew on data from the Women's Ischemia Syndrome Evaluation, or WISE, showed that in middle-aged women, signs of abnormal coronary reactivity independently predict the risk of death and MACE over as long as a decade. Caitlin spoke with Albadri to get some insights into how to recognize ANOCA and what can be done about it. There is a big knowledge gap in, in this field, um, so including the understanding of the pathophysiology, the phenotyping of these patients, mm -hmm. and the importantly is the management. Um, so I think it, the efforts to establish evidence-based diagnostic and therapeutic guidelines mm -hmm. are really needed, and that way it will be much easier to send the patients to do just a an invasive testing or 
or these patients are relatively high risk that they need to do uh, more invasive testing or advanced testing. And at this point, how, how would uh, abnormal results change medical management? Does, is there anything effective that can be done, or is it just risk factor control? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's a good question. Um, and it, just because of the absence of the evidence-based guidelines uh, at this time, the, manage, the strategy uh, managing these patients are uh, pretty unclear. But from previous studies from WISE and other studies by others, um, in addition to treating the comorbidities like diabetes, hypertension, um, we actually uh, have seen that uh, if there is a problem with the endothelial function, mm -hmm. then using aspirin, ACE inhibitors, statins, oh. L-arginine supplements. Um, we've shown that uh, aerobic exercises is actually is very helpful as well. Other than prevention, I think there is also a specific treatment targeting each pathways. Hmm. Um, another example, if there is the coronal flow reserve is abnormal, then using alpha beta blockers or nitrates are helpful. Hmm. Um, Antianginal medication like uh, ranolazine, uh, avervidine, and uh, xanthine derivatives also uh, should that improve symptoms. It's been 18 months since the CANTOS trial was greeted with much fanfare at the ESC meeting in Barcelona. At the time, this positive trial appeared to confirm the long-running inflammatory hypothesis, namely that targeting inflammation to treat residual cardiovascular risk using the monoclonal antibody canakinumab could reduce the rate of cardiovascular events among people with a previous MI and high CRP. Since then, however, momentum seems to have fizzled. Late last year, the U.S. FDA issued a complete response letter to the drug maker, Novartis, requesting more data, and Novartis, it seems, has decided against doing so. Meanwhile, in Europe, Novartis opted to withdraw from the approval process rather than answer additional questions from EU regulators. This month, TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon wrote a feature story addressing the elephant in the room. Was pursuing a cardiovascular indication for an expensive orphan drug simply not a good business decision? What then of the patients who could have seen some benefit from this drug? I hope you'll search out Mike's story entitled Hopes Fade for a CV Indication for Canakinumab, What's Next for the Inflammatory Hypothesis. In the meantime, here's two takes on this story. The first comes from Sanjay Kahl of Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, commenting on the quiet decision by Novartis not to move forward in this space. It is highly unusual, if not unprecedented, for a company to withdraw a claim simply because they did not have the time to respond to all the questions, the objections that were raised by the regulator. So it seems to me that absent any cogent reasons for not pursuing the claim, uh, it, it, marketing considerations might have driven the decision mm -hmm. to withdraw simply because uh, you know, half a billion dollars worth of revenue was at risk. But Robert Harrington of Stanford University also weighed in with a different take. If Cantos had been wildly positive, he told Mike, with significant reductions in mortality and MI, then there would be a large push from the clinical community to demand the therapy be made available. On the flip side, had the drug been patently harmful, with zero benefits for the heart, none of this discussion would be happening. Instead, here we end up in the middle where it has a modest effect. That effect is counterbalanced perhaps by some harm, 
There's no effect on uh, things like mortality. So I, I don't think they have a moral imperative here because the data are not quite so clean cut. I think if, you know, if there was an effect on mortality, big effect on MI, and no counterbalancing safety signal, yeah, I think that that becomes a bit more of a moral imperative. That, boy, we really need to get this to the market. That is all for the February edition of Heart Sounds. To catch up on news from the Society of Thoracic Surgeons annual meeting or from the International Stroke Conference, head to tctmd.com and click on the Conferences tab. Meeting season kicks into high gear in March. TCTMD reporters will be covering the CRT meeting March 2nd to 5th in Washington, D.C., followed by the ACC scientific session in New Orleans mid-month. Reporter Todd Neal is skipping ACC this year in order to head across the pond to the European Heart Rhythm Association Congress in Lisbon. Stay tuned for Todd's coverage during and after the ACC meeting. We're also committed to keeping you up to date on the Paclitaxel device story. This Friday, the Viva meeting planners are hosting a special session to discuss the mortality signal that we've been writing about since December. We tried to get access to this meeting, but we're told it's closed to the press. We're hoping to get the inside scoop from physicians who've been helping us to keep abreast of this story. If you yourself are attending the Viva conference, please drop us a line. For breaking news and daily coverage of cardiology research and policy, subscribe to our news brief. You can sign up with a few keystrokes at the very bottom of the TCTMD homepage. And if you've got a story to tell us about, you can reach any of the TCTMD reporters via their bios on the website. I myself am swood at tctmd.com, and I'm on Twitter as ShellyWood2. If you already follow me on Twitter, you'll know I have a novel coming out March 5th. The Quintland Sisters has absolutely nothing to do with heart disease, that's a promise. But aren't you curious? I'm certainly curious about how many copies it will sell, hence why I'm mentioning it. If you want to help me with that, it should be available in most English language bookstores in the US, Canada, and overseas. But don't worry, I'm still plenty curious about the prevention and treatment of cardiovascular disease. I look forward to getting results for several big trials coming out at ACC, as well as seeing many of you in person. Please say hello if you see me scurrying between the main tent and the press room. In the meantime, thanks for tuning in to Heart Sounds. <laughs>